My name's Greg Knapp. This is the Greg Knapp Experience, your 20-minute thrill ride for your commute or your workout. Well, social media bans a quote from Thomas Paine. Yes, we are living in 1984. So-called green California failing at its own emission standards. We should learn from their mistakes. NBC misleads on children COVID hospitalizations in a crazy way. You got to hear that story. And Washington Democrats want to decrease penalties for drive-by shooting murderers. Wait till you hear why. All that and a lot more coming up in this edition of the Greg Knapp Experience. Let's go. So I want to start with what's going on with our society over words and expression and what you're allowed to say and what questions you're allowed to ask and cancel culture and all this nonsense. And it's just seems to keep getting worse every day. Now, I feel like we're starting to push back against it because we've got liberals like Bill Maher acknowledging what we've been talking about for years now. You've got some just average Democrats pushing back on it. You, You see social media just starting to realize maybe we've gone too far. Well, Facebook and Instagram have been banning a quote by American revolutionary Thomas Paine. Quillette managing editor Colin Wright first pointed this out. Sunday, he shared this quote from Thomas Paine, and it's a great one. He who dares not offend cannot be honest. Right. I mean, isn't that it? That's the point of having free speech is you need to be able to say what you think and be honest. Sometimes it's really good stuff. Sometimes it's really bad stuff. But you've got to be able to let people talk and work it out and argue in the arena of ideas instead of trying to tell people they can't even think something, can't even dare say it, can't even dare ask it. And all it does is push it underground and you end up with people going crazy and underground conspiracy theories explode. And the next thing you know, you're Nazi Germany. I don't think that's the great way to go. Let's let it all out into the sunlight. Let's have the debates and let's move forward. No, no, can't do that. I'm going to cancel you. So that's the quote. He who dares not offend cannot be honest. And he tweeted a picture of the paying quote. And then the subsequent notice he got from Instagram, the post was removed for false information. What's the false information? You're saying the guy's quote is false? You're saying it didn't come from him? We know it it did come from him. It came from Payne's April 24, 1776, response to Cato's 4th through 7th letters. So we know it's an accurate quote. So what's misinformation about it? What's false information about it? That you you can be honest if you dare not offend? (laughs) So one idea is that maybe it's because there were a bunch of anti-COVID people who were using that quote. Because... The other tweet that that was shared by Colin Wright and others who did the same thing to see if it would happen to them is that Twitter and Facebook, I'm sorry, another Twitter user said the screenshotted Facebook notice when they were banned from Facebook for 24 hours over it said this, this post goes against our standards on misinformation about vaccines. So only you can see it. Now, there's nothing in the quote about a vaccine. So maybe it's a bad algorithm that they developed because a lot of people who were anti-vaccine were using that quote. But it really just shows you how far this has gone and what big, big social media is doing. Big tech is doing. And it really made me think about we are living in 1984. One of the quotes I love from 1984. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. And we're doing that now, aren't we? Words are being redefined. And if you remember another quote from 1984, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. I mean, he's just, 
That book is so prescient in what is happening now. I mean, think about that. You know, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. I mean, today you might say things like racism is treating people equally. Wait, what? Men with penises are women if they claim to be. Huh? Silence is violence. What? Yeah. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Oh, and this is a great quote from 1984 as well. Freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four. And I think more and more people are starting to say, I have the right to say two plus two equals four. Hey, if you're enjoying the show, I hope you will tell three friends to tell three friends about the show. Ask them to share it. Be part of the movement to push back on the left's idea of America and the left's cancel culture and craziness that we were just talking about and rally around what makes America exceptional. So I hope you'll do that and check out the Greg Knapp Experience Facebook page. Like it. That'll keep you up to date with everything I'm doing. Subscribe and share the podcast. It's everywhere you can find podcasts. I know you know because you're listening to it now. We move on to John Stossel. Now, this guy's a libertarian. And I love what he wrote today about money because he's, he's writing about the Christmas season. Now's the time for giving. And he says, I give. I give to charities. And he pointed out a couple of them. And the ones he gives to are the ones where he, they help other people lift themselves up. The Doe Fund is one. He said it helps drug users and ex-cons find purpose in life through work. Their slogan is work works. And it does. Most Doe Fund workers find more joy supporting themselves than they ever found in drugs. And then he also donates to student sponsor partners. That's a nonprofit that gives scholarships to at-risk kids so they can escape bad public schools. And he said, listen, when I was young, I assumed government would lift people out of poverty. That's what he was taught. That's what a lot of our young people are taught. That's what I was taught. I was very liberal coming out of high school and college until I got into the real world. And as Ronald Reagan said, I was mugged by reality because I was working as a child mental health counselor. And I saw these kids on all these different government programs and I saw their families on all these different government programs. And not only were they not working, they were making things worse and they were keeping these families in cycles of poverty and they were taking away all their motivation and ambition to make their lives better, to support themselves and to, you know, improve their lot in life for their next generation. It was horrible. It's why I got out of it. Eventually I couldn't take it anymore. Well, that same thing happened to John Stossel. And he said he looked at it, and when the war on poverty began back in the 60s, many Americans were already lifting themselves out of poverty. America was getting richer and richer every year before that started. Then the war on poverty from government. Our, our nation spent nearly $30 trillion on the war on poverty. For about seven years, the poverty rate was dropping. But of course, it was dropping before it started. But then the poverty mm, stagnated. Many people became dependent on the government handouts. It created learned helplessness. You probably have learned that in your psychology 101 class. So the government poverty programs actually created an underclass, generations of people who now don't work because they lose benefits if they do. Yeah, we're rewarding not working, just like our welfare programs reward not being married and having children. See, the difference between charities and government charities can discourage dependence. They can make judgments on who needs the hand up and who needs a kick in the butt. Governments don't. Government programs don't. But uh, John Stossel goes a step further and says even better than charity is 
capitalism. What? No way! Capitalism's evil! It's awful! Nothing has helped more people get out of poverty around the world than capitalism. And he talks about Elon Musk. I don't know if you saw this one. Senator Elizabeth Warren went after him and said that he should, quote, pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else, end quote. And here was Musk's response. I will pay more taxes than any American in history this year. It's 11 billion this year. 11 billion with a B. Don't spend it all at once. Oh, wait, you did already. (laughs) That is great stuff from Elon Musk. Now, the part where I agree that he's a freeloader, and this is not what Warren was talking about. She was talking about his taxes, is that every Tesla that is sold, you, the taxpayer, Gives his car company about twelve thousand five hundred bucks. What seventy five hundred to twelve thousand? It all depends on on a bunch of different things we don't need to get into right now. But yes, and and, and that's where he's a freeloader, not in his taxes. Musk also is skeptical of charity. He was asked by the United Nations World Food Program to donate $6.6 billion. All the billionaires were asked to. And he said, wait a second. All right, you describe exactly how the $6 billion will solve world hunger. I'll sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Because, you know, he has that money. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't tell him. And they already spend $6 billion. Yes, $6 billion will not solve world hunger, but will prevent geopolitical instability, mass migration, and save 42 million people on the brink of starvation. They already spend $6 billion and it's not enough. And a lot of that money gets wasted, and it's not doing the stuff to help people improve their lot in life so they won't be just as hungry next year. And what, what Stossel's trying to point out here is these capitalists like Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and Bezos, they do things that improve your lifestyle so you give them money. And by the way, they're able to hire people who then earn money and spend money and take care of their families. Zuckerberg invents better ways to connect with people. Bezos makes shopping cheaper and easier. Musk, besides his cars, makes satellite internet available to more people. Businesses do things like that because the competition forces them to spend their money well, and if they don't, they disappear. But government never disappears, even when it fails. People hate capitalists, but they're the ones who create the jobs, lift the people out of poverty, and feed the world. And I'm all for the capitalists. We're not really a capitalist nation anymore. Well, great, capitalists, they're just a bunch of greedy people. The break on greed is people will stop buying your stuff and they'll buy it from the guy who's not greedy and who is doing a better job. But when they get too big and they start getting in with government and they start changing the law to make it harder for the little guy to compete with them, then we have not really capitalism. We have crony capitalism. And we're seeing a lot of that. Oh, meanwhile, you you want to talk about your economic situation right now and how it's been under Biden? Stephen Moore points out the Trump economic record looks better every day. No one has vindicated Trump's to make America great again policies more persuasively than Biden. High gas prices, highest inflation rate in four decades, a plan to double the national debt in 12 years. That's even after it was doubled under Trump. I mean, he, he definitely spent a ton. So that's not my favorite thing about Trump. But they're talking about doubling it again. And falling paychecks for workers. Well, Trump's strategy, what was it? Reduce taxes, slash regulation, increase domestic energy production, 
and fix the trade deals that we had internationally, especially with China. And the progressive movement, this is going to destroy the world. The Washington Post claimed before the 2016 election, quote, Trump could destroy the world economy, end quote. And they weren't the only ones. A lot of the people on the left were saying this was going to just destroy our economy, and it was never better. Over his first three years, before COVID, unemployment rate fell below 4%, near the lowest in half a century. Inflation rate fell to 1%. Wow. That kept the interest rates on mortgages and other loans down to the lowest level in modern times. Poverty rates fell to their lowest levels ever recorded for, ready? Women, children, blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians. Median household income rose to nearly $68,000. That was a gain of 5000 in three years. It was more than the gain in the second term of George W. Bush and the eight years of Barack Obama. Under Trump, we became energy independent. In fact, the month that Trump left office, America imported zero oil from Saudi Arabia. Zero. Because our oil and gas production had surged. Now we're begging OPEC to turn on the spigots. But no, no, no. He had mean tweets. (coughs) Hey, uh, I want to get you this story out of California because I think it has a great lesson for us. And it's California trying to reduce emissions big time. But there's a a left-leaning organization that gave it a report card that said it ain't doing so well. State law gives the California Air Resources Board, they call it CARB, power to reduce statewide emissions 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. Whoa. So how do you do it? Well, they put in a cap-and-trade program. They've got low-carbon fuel standards. they got the electrical vehicle and renewable electricity mandates and all kinds of things, and they're all raising costs to do business and to live there. But, hey, it's worth it for the climate. Well, is it? Because the state is failing on its climate goals. The group is called Next 10. It's liberal, and it doesn't even include the emissions from wildfires and renewable fuels, and it says California is still not doing well. Quote, assuming the same three year average rate for reduction from 2017 to 2019, which is 1.3 percent, California will reach its 2030 and 2050 goals by 2063 and 2111. Slowing renewable energy growth, underwhelming transportation sector gains, a worrisome cross sector overdependence on natural gas pose major challenges for the state. End quote. Well, last year, California, California added more natural gas than solar. Why? Because solar isn't reliable. They had to bring in the natural gas to back it up. They also have shut down some of their nuclear plants and shut down hydropower because of droughts. And it's had to import power from other states, some of them using coal. <laughs> Green California. Environmental and zoning regulations have increased housing prices so much, more people are moving inland in California, where it's hotter in the summer, colder in the winter. They're using more air conditioning and heating. And guess what? That has more emissions. Oh, man. It gets even worse. How about this? Measures put in place to protect the ozone layer under a 1987 protocol are actually contributing more to global warming. One of California's fastest growing sources of emissions, high global warming potential gases from substitutes for ozone depletion substances. So all that stuff they were using for refrigeration, air conditioning, fire suppression. So we got to change this because it's bad for the ozone. Well, the stuff they're putting in that's supposedly better turns out to be contributing to global warming. (laughs) Emissions from wildfires soared. Why? 
decades of forest mismanagement. They 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 went to this plan of stopping all forest fires, and you've got to allow forest fires constantly that are produced by nature and by man to burn out the underbrush so that you don't have the huge conflagrations that you tend to get year after year in California. Do you know last year's wildfires in California, second largest source of emissions for the entire state, one fire in Northern California produced more greenhouse gases than all non-industrial business emissions. Wow. And the next 10 excludes the wildfires. Also excludes the, quote, biogenic materials including the renewable fuels that are used to replace oil, even though they are a large source of the state's emissions. If you included the wildfires and the renewable fuels, the emissions have risen since 2000, not gone down, which means they're not going to hit their goals ever. And yet what are they doing? They're doubling down. Governor Gavin Newsom ordered sales of new gas-powered cars be banned by 2035. That's 13 years from now. During the summer, CARB upped the ante and they proposed to require all new light-duty cars sold in the state by 2025 to be electric. 2025! That's three years from now. And that refineries be shut down by 2035. Wow. I'm sure that will do exactly what they think it will do. There will be absolutely no unintended consequences. There will be no pushback. There, there, it'll be easy for everybody in California to afford a brand new electric vehicle. There's nothing to worry about here. Yeah, maybe it's time that the voters start to realize what they've been voting for and the rest of America not to follow. John Binder points out that in Biden's first year, illegal immigration has outpaced the populations of many major American cities. Over two million illegal aliens have attempted to cross the southern border since Biden took office. Hundreds of thousands have been released into the U.S. interior. By the way, that number of illegal alien encounters will have surpassed the resident populations of Phoenix, Arizona, Philadelphia, San Antonio, San Diego and Dallas and many others. Yeah. Great job. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Then we move on to what's going on with COVID. NBC has an amazing headline on their story. And by amazing, I mean amazingly awful. Child COVID hospitalizations are up, especially in five states. Children have been hospitalized at nearly twice the rate of adults in the past four weeks. Well, if you actually read down into the NBC article, you see that it's extremely misleading. First of all, Children have not been hospitalized at nearly twice the rate of adults. The rate of hospitalization for children has increased at twice the rate of adults, but not the actual rate. In the last four weeks, this is from their article, the average number of children hospitalized with COVID-19 jumped 52% from a low of 1270 to 1933 on Sunday. So wait a second. You went from 1,270 out of 73 million children, 18 and under in the United States, to 1933, well, yeah, 52% increase. Yeah, 663 actual kids. Yeah, so right now, if you do the math, 73 million children in America equals a hospitalization rate of 0.000026. Yeah, but it's up 52%. Yeah, you kind of need to know what the rate was first, don't you? By the way, if you notice, it said children hospitalized with COVID, not for COVID. What's the difference? We'll get to that in a second. In the same period, adult COVID hospitalizations increased 29%, suggesting the pediatric hospitalizations rose at nearly twice the rate. Yeah, twice the rate, but not twice the number. The number of kids hospitalized with COVID is more than doubled in 10 states, as well as Washington, D.C., 
Okay, blah, 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 blah. Then you get to this, though. Dr. Paul Offit. This is in the NBC article. Dr. Paul Offit, vaccine expert at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, said this. The increase was inevitable because of the arrival of winter and the transmissibility of the Omicron variant. Then he went on. He said his hospital has seen a lot of kids test positive for COVID without necessarily showing symptoms or getting sick. Wait, what? I thought they were there for COVID. Nope. Quote from Dr. Offit. We test anybody who's admitted to the hospital for whatever reason to see whether or not they have COVID. And we're definitely seeing an increase in cases. However, we're really not seeing an increase in children who are hospitalized for COVID or in the intensive care unit for COVID. Okay, so wait a second. So they're admitted for whatever other reason, broken arm, uh, maybe they've got uh, surgery they're going to do, whatever it is. They're admitted for some other reason and they test them just to see if they have COVID. And if they do, they're counted as a COVID hospitalization. Now, they're not there for COVID. They're asymptomatic. They're not getting treated for COVID at all. And yet they're now being counted by NBC as COVID hospitalizations. No, there's a huge difference between admitted with COVID and admitted for COVID. What a piece of crap article and headline that was. Wow. And you talk about misinformation. Deplatform NBC. Oh, well, you know, we should at least let everybody talk. South Africa study, though, suggests that the Omicron infection could boost immunity against the Delta variant as well. Chris Pandolfo reporting this study in South Africa found that people who were infected with Omicron developed enhanced immunity to the Delta variant. And their immunity was even stronger if they had previously been vaccinated against COVID-19. That's what we've been saying for the super immunity, that story came out last week. They said that they're optimistic that if Omicron proves to cause less severe disease than Delta, the pandemic may finally end. The ultimate question is whether Omicron is less, less pathogenic compared to Delta. If so, then the incidence of COVID-19 severe disease will be reduced and the infection may shift to become less disruptive to individuals and society. That's from the authors of the study. That sounds pretty doggone good. One other really good piece about covid Alicia Finley wrote this one in the Wall Street Journal. Is fluvoxamine the COVID drug we've been waiting for? Now, you've heard about the monoclonal antibody treatments. You've heard about Pfizer's new pill and Merck's new pill. Great. Sure. Fine. I'm all for everything. What do we got? Let me see it. But have you heard of fluvoxamine? It's a 10-day treatment. It costs only $4. And there have been three promising studies on it. It's it's a pill that's been approved since 1994, but it's to treat OCD and off-label for anxiety, depression, and panic attacks. And what the studies show, it's highly effective at preventing hospitalization in COVID-infected patients and unlikely to be blunted by Omicron. Now, why? Why would this work? Well, the doctors think that it can trigger a cascade of reactions in cells that modulate inflammation and interfere with virus functions. There's also an increase in melatonin that makes you sleepy. Evidence suggests that can also mitigate inflammation. So they did a small randomized control trial last year at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. It was a great success. None of the 80 participants who started the fluvoxamine within seven days of developing COVID symptoms deteriorated. The placebo group, six of the 72 got worse, four were hospitalized. So then after that, there was a COVID outbreak among employees at the Golden Gate Fields Horse Racing Track in Berkeley, California. And so the physician offered people the fluvoxamine if they wanted it. After 14 days, none of the 65 patients who took it were hospitalized or still had symptoms. 48 who did not take it 
six, 12.5%, were hospitalized and one died. And that wasn't it. They did it again at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario last winter, a large clinical trial in Brazil, and they had great results too. Flavoxamine reduced the odds of hospitalization or emergency care by 66% and death by 90% among unvaccinated high-risk patients. Wow. So remember, 10-day course, four bucks, compared with $2,100 for the monoclonal, and $530 to $700 for Pfizer or Merck pills. And we already have multiple drug makers making fluvoxamine, and we could ramp it up pretty easily if demand increases. Now, you could probably get certain doctors to prescribe this for you off-label right now. Why isn't the FDA looking to try to make this something that we can use? Maybe it's because it only costs 4 bucks over 10 days. I don't know. But that's something to keep in your quiver if you're looking for arrows to shoot at COVID. More than half of the rioters arrested in Buffalo during the George Floyd riots have had their cases dismissed. Nick Monroe pointing that out. Yep. 47 out of 57 arrests made during the George Floyd BLM riots in the summer of 2020 in Buffalo have been either dismissed or given adjournments and are being considered for dismissal. Very few have gone all the way through court proceedings. So as we're being told, we, we got to we got to watch these people on January 6th. You got to the fullest extent of the law. All of them need to go to jail. But yet all these other people. Oh, well, you know, they, they, it was it was for the right reasons. It was mostly peaceful. It was, how about equality under the law? How about actually enforcing the law so that you don't encourage people to continue to do what they've been doing in these cities across America over the last couple of years? So so then we turn from that what we've seen in these Democratic cities and the softening of laws and the softening of punishments in these democratic cities we take you to the washington state democratic party they are pushing house bill 1692 it's sponsored by democratic representatives tara simmons and david hackney and what they're pushing is a bill that would decrease penalties for drive-by shooting murderers and they say they're doing it to promote racial equity huh By the way, Washington has been ranked among the worst in the country for drive-by shootings. But they said it will, quote, promote racial equity in the criminal legal system by eliminating drive-by shooting as a basis for elevating murder in the first degree to aggravated murder in the first degree. Why? Well, they were asked. They wouldn't respond to interview requests, but they did put out a statement, these two state representatives, and they said this. The existing penalties are, quote, targeted at gangs that were predominantly young and black, end quote. Okay, so here's what they're trying to say. Because it's mainly young black men who are doing drive-by shootings, increasing the penalty for that when they kill people, that's racist. So we want to promote racial equity by decreasing the penalty for that. Well, guess what? You're right that these gangs are predominantly young and black that are doing this. So are their victims, Maybe somebody should be looking out for the victims who are getting shot and killed, especially the innocent victims who just happen to live in these high crime neighborhoods because that's all they can afford to live in. And you're doing a horrible job decreasing crime in those neighborhoods. Unbelievable. And and then you throw in Catherine Hamilton pointing out that Biden's Department of Justice is now bailing out these blue cities, grappling with their rising violent crime because of what they've been doing to police by giving them money. One point six billion dollars is out there to support programs supposedly to reduce violent crime. Now, of course, that should be a state, city and local issue. But the Democrats want to buy your vote by pouring out money to these cities that can't seem to control their crime. You know, places like Seattle and Chicago. They're getting seven hundred seventy one thousand and two point four million, respectively, 
Seattle has repeatedly slashed its policing budget. Chicago already had more than 800 homicides this year. Then they go into Philadelphia and Baltimore, New York, all the places you would expect. Yes, they're eligible for the money and they're getting it while they're doing all these things to harm the police and allow crime to increase. Isn't it just great? Nice. And finally, did you get to watch the John Madden documentary on Christmas Day? I thought it was great. I mean, I, I'm just a big John Madden fan. And John Madden died on Tuesday morning at 85 years old. And, man, he had a great life. And it looked like he had a great family. I mean, married to his wife for 61 years. Both of his sons love him. Uh, Most of America loves him. People my age remember him winning the Super Bowl as the coach of the Oakland Raiders and then becoming a great broadcaster with Pat Summerall. Man, I loved watching those guys every Sunday. And then... You remember Madden football started when video games were still in their infancy, and now every year it just gets better and better. I mean, it's like you're watching a real football game. I don't play video games, but I sure know a lot of people that love that game, Madden football. So it was very sad to me to see John Madden pass, but, man, it's great to see that he had an amazing life and touched a lot of people. Rest in peace, John Madden. My name's Greg Knapp. This is the Greg Knapp Experience. (laughs) 